This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, we head to Vanuatu to find out the latest on Cyclone Judy. And several Pacific countries still criminalise homosexuality, but members of the queer community say that's just half the problem. It's much more tragic. It's much more traumatic. Tomorrow is not promised for queer people in Melanesia. And a new ABC documentary showcases stories of innovation in the Pacific. We kept coming across these fantastic stories of how people had actually used the COVID crisis as an opportunity. They'd kind of found the silver lining. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, several countries in the Pacific still criminalise homosexuality, where same-sex relationships can carry up to 14 years in jail. And though these laws are rarely used, activists say discrimination against LGBTQI people is a massive problem on the islands. But with some Pacific church groups keen to listen and create more inclusive communities, could change be in the air? Dubrovka Volodar with this report from World Pride in Sydney. From a young age, Rockin' John Chionko from Guam knew something was special. There was always a little part of me that always knew when I was younger that I was different. Um, in elementary school, you know, they'd kind of use shim as like a way to refer to me. And I never really quite understood um, that at the time or really took on it as a very like derogatory term. Rockin' John came out at the age of 12 to a mostly accepting family. My grandmother was definitely actually one of the first people within my immediate family that I came out to and she was really supportive and I think it's one of those rare instances that you actually see one of our elders embracing you know their queer children uh, their queer descendants. But outside of the family circle it was a different story a challenge Rockin' John has navigated daily. In this space I have to be one and the other space I have to be another but when I found out it's just that you know, I've always been me and that there's no one else to be. And so kind of just move with both parts of myself. Rockin' John is one of a number of Pacific sexual and gender diverse activists who are celebrating World Pride in Sydney this week. While they're celebrating their sexual identity openly here, it's a different story across the Pacific. According to the Human Dignity Trust, Seven Pacific countries criminalize LGBTQI plus people. They're Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Tonga, Cook Islands, Kiribati and Tuvalu. Professor Paula Gerber from Monash University says their laws stem from British colonial times. So Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Samoa, Tonga, etc. The criminal laws, yes, they exist on the books, but they are not being, you know, actively prosecuted um, and people are not being charged or convicted. But she says discrimination is a big problem. What is having a greater impact on the ability of LGBTIQ plus people to live their lives with dignity is a lack of anti-discrimination laws. Having the sort of the protections in anti-discrimination law would have a great impact on how they can live their lives with dignity. Joey Jolene Mataele from Tonga says even before legal change, their priority is acceptance. We don't really want to work on the decriminalization until we work on the basics. 
There's other matters on the ground that needs to change. For instance, being bullied, being harassed in schools, being harassed in the rural areas. We need to work on those things. Let alone, cross-dressing law is still in there. We need to change that too. You know, we need to change those laws. In Samoa, dressing as a different gender has been decriminalized. Fafafine Fangalima Tuatangaloa says it's made things easier for her and others in the community. We've been struggling in the beginning and pushing hard for our recognition as Fafafine and Fatsama in Samoa. For now, um, we are widely accepted in the community due to a lot of contributions made by the society in not just in families but in other communities like church uh, communities the village communities but it's a different story for others in the Samoan rainbow community who are not fafafine and not protected by the law they're still not yet coming out of their closets we respect their privacy and their individual concerns as well but it's also something that we really want them to to advocate for and to come out and speak about their gender identity or their sexual orientations. We're, we're still working on it. It's a similar situation in a number of Melanesian countries, including Solomon Islands and Papua New Guinea. The queer Melanesian experience is quite different from the Polynesian queer experience. It's much more tragic. It's much more traumatic. Tomorrow is not promised for queer people in Melanesia. That's the reality of what it's like on the ground. Eroni Dina, the executive director of the group Trans Affirmative Action Guild, is from Fiji, but talks on behalf of rainbow communities in Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands. An island nation like Solomon Islands has not been able to mobilize queer movements on the ground because of fear for their livelihoods, the fear of the, the actual existence, and of course security. Queer people do exist. We know that they exist in isolation from each other because for them to come together and formalize, it'll basically be a receiving pushback from institutions called the church, from culture, etc. I've been there on the ground personally, and the visibility of queer people on the ground is zero to none. While Fiji has decriminalized homosexuality, there are still issues. Isikeli Vulavo is chief executive of the Pacific Sexual and Gender Diversity Network. There's still a lot of, uh, there's a gap between legislation and the practice on the ground. So the, part of the work that our members in Fiji are doing is trying to narrow that gap so that uh, to reduce the experiences of stigma, discrimination and violence of our members. While religion is often at odds with LGBTQI plus rights in the Pacific, this week in Sydney, the General Secretary of Pacific Conference of Churches, Reverend James Bagwan, is at the table and listening. What I am grateful for is the invitation to be able to engage. You know, this requires for every single person who is a person of faith to dig deep. But of course the task is now to go back and find ways to respectfully share the messages, the lessons um, from our rainbow community to our, our Christian community in the Pacific. That's my role. Until then, Rockin' John from Guam says it's all about acceptance 
and love. We're most capable of loving and embracing um, each other, but most especially ourselves. And that was Rokin John Chenko from Guam speaking to Dubrovka Volodya. And stay tuned later in the show where we speak to a researcher launching the first ever survey for the Pacific's LGBTQI plus community. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Parts of Vanuatu were put on red alert yesterday as Cyclone Judy intensified into a Category 3 storm with gale force winds and torrential rain threatening the country's northern islands. But authorities were prepared. The slow-moving storm gave time for warnings to go out, with people in low-lying areas urged to move to higher ground. Joining us on the line from Luganville is Carol Rovu, Provincial Emergency Coordinator for Sanma Province. Uh, good morning to you, Carol. Good morning. Um, so tell us, what is it like there at the moment? Have you had impacts of the cyclone already? Uh, at the moment, uh, Lukenville and Sanma provinces are quiet and calm. Uh, we've had a red alert issue to us uh, since uh, Monday until yesterday. We've organized our teams for emergency operations, awareness going out to the communities and uh, preparedness on evacuation sites. But uh, until now, we are quiet. Uh, there was no damage so far, I've seen. And uh, we are We'll be meeting this morning at 9 for an update from all our uh, clusters, just in case if there's any impacts uh, affecting some of our islands in the province. But uh, so far, the place is quiet since last night until now. Oh, that's good. That's very good news mm-hmm. because I understand mm-hmm. um, the cyclone. Has it become a category cyclone overnight? Um, can you tell us what, what, what you're expecting during the day? Uh, yeah, yesterday it was uh, Category 2, and then uh, last night it moved up to Category 3, and now it's moving down to Sheva province. Okay, so has it already passed um, Santo and, and your islands around there in Luganville? Yes, uh, actually it passed east, so we've, we, don't have, uh, we, have, we have not experienced much of the cyclone impacts. Oh, well, that's very, very good news. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I know we've been hearing that um, authorities were prepared, that um, people like you as emergency coordinators, um, you know, knew that the storm was coming and were able to um, prepare for it. What were you doing mm-hmm. over, the, um, the, over, over the previous days to prepare for the cyclone? Uh, so on Monday, when we were issued the red alert, we activated our emergency operations center here in Luganville, and uh, all our classes were activated to prepare. And uh, yesterday, uh, some of our teams uh, started going out to the communities to make awareness for people to start moving to, you know, higher grounds and prop, uh, to evacuation sites if they know they're living in a low-lying areas and. Uh, uh, any risk of flooding uh, in the night, but unfortunately we don't experience any impacts of the cyclones. But we've organised our evacuation sites ready in advance to, you know, to towards uh, uh, experiencing the cyclone coming from our uh, our province. But unfortunately we don't receive anything, so we've prepared our evacuation sites and everyone is well informed in yes. advance. 
Oh, well, that's good. I mean, it's fortunate that, that it didn't need to be used, I guess. Better to prepare for the worst of outcomes and um, mm-hmm. know, know that you don't need to use it. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, Santo and, and, and the islands in San Juan have experienced really devastating mm-hmm. cyclones, haven't they? Can you, yeah. can you tell us about Cyclone Harold, which I understand was the last big one? Uh, oh, thank you. Yes, so Cyclone Harvard actually hit us in 2020. Unfortunately, I was not here at this at that time. But yeah, it was really devastating for our population here in Sanma. And a lot of damages uh, here, especially on infrastructures and uh, uh, gardens, especially the food and uh, yeah, buildings were totally damaged. But at this time, everyone is, you know, after the experience from uh, TZ Harold, everyone is prepared to face this. And because one water, we've you know every year we have already we always experience uh, cyclones. So at this time when we issued warnings, red alert, especially everyone is well prepared. Mm-mm. Oh, that's good. And did you mm-hmm. did you find that people were listening and were taking action early um, because of that? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, yesterday we've experienced a different scenario here where we were issued red alert warnings, but some of our market vendors were still at the market, especially here in Luganville. So we had to organize our response team to go out and assist and move them to the evacuation sites just to get prepared in case of uh, the cyclone moving towards our direction at midnight. But, uh, yeah, we've had some market vendors doing market when we were issued red alert warnings yesterday. Uh, okay, and did you speak to them? Did you know? Do you know why they didn't um, act on that red alert? Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah, they, what they mentioned to us was they hadn't received, they haven't received any information about uh, a cyclone coming to Sanma or even Vanuatu. So they were not really informed. Probably they don't have access to uh, information like radio or other media because most of our people live inland and remote area where they do not have access to communication. Mm. Um, now, Carol, this is, you know, we're in cyclone season for the mm-hmm. moment. I understand this mm-hmm. is the biggest cyclone during this season that has hit Vanuatu. Um, mm-hmm. Do you expect it to um, calm down after after this time or, or are the cyclones predicted? Uh, yeah, I think uh, there's another one coming from, uh, if I'm correct, from... Uh, uh, Somewhere uh, near Australia, but it was not predicted a cyclone yet. But yeah, we 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 organizing as everyone getting prepared in case it uh, declared a cyclone soon. Okay, so you still need mm-hmm. to need to be prepared and be on your toes for that. Yes. Uh, yes. And you know, when we talk about these natural disasters, Carol, I, I know mm-hmm. your your priority is the emergency evacuation and coordinating what people need. Mm-hmm. But more mm-hmm. broadly, people start being concerned about if this is more frequent, if they're becoming more um, disastrous because of climate change. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that, Carol? Have you seen um, cyclones pick up speed, these disasters you know, hit harder um, because of climate change? Uh, yes, I totally agree with that because it seems that, uh, you know, especially for Vanuatu where we had our cyclone seasons uh, from November to April each year, yeah, we've we've experienced disaster. So it's a climate change issue mm-hmm. for us. Yes, yes. Um, that's mm-hmm. what we're hearing mm-hmm. with these big cyclones like the recent mm-hmm. cyclone Gabrielle in, in New Zealand as well. Yeah. Um, well, you said that nine o'clock is, is the meeting that's coming up for you this morning. What do you yes. expect for the, for the day, for the week ahead um, when it comes to this cyclone duty? 
Uh, okay, yeah, for this, uh, because at this time, uh, last night we were at uh, Red Alert, but at this time, since the cyclone is moving down south towards uh, Sheva province and the other southern provinces, uh, we, our plan for today was to organize ourselves in case the next uh, cyclone that is uh, close to Australia coming over will probably, you know, turn into cyclone very soon or not, but at least we get prepared and also organize ourselves since we are still in Red Alert. Some of our schools are still closed yet, so we, our classes and the team need to be updated on what we should be, uh, you know, informing our people. Today. Yes, yes. Well, some important work there. Um, Carol, so yes. good to hear uh-huh. that things are calm um, there uh-huh. where you are in Luganville uh-huh. and um, hope that continues uh, for, for this next uh-huh. cyclone too that might emerge. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning on, on Pacific Beat. Thank you. That was Carol Rovo, the emergency coordinator for San Juan province, speaking to us there from Luganville as she explained to us things are calm despite that red alert being issued uh, in light of Cyclone Judy passing through those northern islands of Vanuatu. Um, as Carol said, that, that cyclone has now moved south, uh, heading towards Sheffer province, towards the capital Port Villa. Um, I've seen some reports on social media saying that the people in those islands are experiencing heavy winds some rain, the usual things that come from storm, but no accounts of any damages that I can see yet. But if you are in Vanuatu, if you're listening in, do get in touch with us at ABC Pacific. We'd love to hear what you're feeling, and particularly on that question of climate change. You know, Vanuatu is um, putting their bid to get an advisory opinion on climate change at the International Court of Justice. That's supposed to happen this month, in fact. So what do you think about these frequencies, the impacts of these cyclones and and climate change? Do you think more should be done? Do get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter at ABC Pacific or you can reach us on email pacific at abc.net.au. Celebrate the pride of the Pacific. You know, we're proud of our country and our heritage. Stay up to date with all the latest sporting news. So emotional every time you go out there and you sing the the national anthem. And hear inspiring stories from some of the Pacific's finest athletes. I've grown so much confidence within myself and I've never thought I would be the player that I am today. Watch That Pacific Sports Show Wednesday nights at 7png time on ABC Australia. And it's time for that, well, that time in Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, we're joined by Kyle Evans, as always. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, now let's start in Kiribati. We've been following that uh, drought that's hit the country for quite some time. And now an MP there is calling on the government to do more for her island, which is ex- facing extreme drought. What exactly did she say? Yeah, from cyclones to drought, it's funny how it works sometimes. The uh, the MP for Arore says her island has had almost no rain for two years uh, and the 1,000 residents uh, who live there are in bad need of help. So uh, this is reported by RNZ and Arore is uh, located to the west uh, of the mainland and she says that drinking water has actually become brackish uh, which means it's turning more salt uh, than it is fresh and uh, and the tops of coconut trees are starting to fall off as all the vegetation is, is beginning to die out. Oh gosh, does, does she explain exactly what is needed? Um, because, you know, when it comes to droughts, it's 
It's weather patterns and things. What can the government do? Yeah, well, different weather patterns would uh, would certainly be nice. Uh, she says the most rain they've had uh, in the last two years has basically been uh, been drizzle, which you know isn't enough to get it done. There's some really fascinating pictures uh, located within the article at RNZ, and, and they, the island at the moment really does look quite volcanic. It's just that dry. Um, not a lot that can be done uh, other than rain, unfortunately. But what she does want the government uh, to do is actually uh, start paying for the repair and a bit of extra maintenance for the water treatment plant, which is currently on the island, because that's pretty much the only source of uh, fresh water they've got left. Oh, gosh. Um, well, hopefully there is some um, hope for the people of Arore. Is that what you said? The, the island mm-hmm. there in Kiribati. Um, do we know how many people live on the island? About a thousand. About a thousand. Okay. Yes. Well, hopefully they can get some help because two years without rain must be difficult. Um, and now let's head to some sporting news, but some sand sporting news, unfortunately. A talented up-and-coming Fiji footballer suddenly passed away. What happened to him? That's right. So uh, a Fiji rugby union under-20s player, uh, Ratu Pasikali Naivo, uh, has passed away quite suddenly um, uh, on Sunday at Lakuta Hospital. Um, and this is reported by FBC, who confirmed the news from Fiji, uh, sorry, Fiji rugby union chair Humphrey Tawaki. Um, it's understood he collapsed in a training session. Uh, no word yet, however, on the exact cause of his death. However, what we do know is that the coaching staff of the Fiji under-20s rugby side has all been stood down. Oh, gosh. Um, that is very um, sad. I mean, you said that he was an up-and-coming player. What was his... Um you know, did he have expectations to go quite far? I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, he, he come from, came from a great pedigree. Uh, he was the son of a former a former flying Fijians locker, Api Naivo, who made 30 international test caps and uh, and also played in the Super Rugby for both the uh, the Blues and Chiefs. And um, as for his son, you know, he, he, he played in the Fiji schoolboys under 18 side as, as recently as last year. So, I mean, yeah, it, look, it, it didn't seem like there were any issues with him before this uh, this sudden tragedy. Yeah, very, very sad, particularly when there is no, I guess, reason given um, for his his death. But um, our thoughts and prayers with the family and, and his teammates as well, who I'm sure uh, are really feeling his loss. Um, now let's let's head to some, I guess, happier uh, sports news. A young Tongan rugby lead player is about to make his NRL debut. Can you tell us more about him? Yeah, this is uh, this is massive news. So uh, Isaiah Katoa will suit up at 5'8 for uh, NRL newcomers, the Dolphins, uh, against the Roosters uh, this weekend. So uh, Wayne Bennett actually made the somewhat shocking announcement yesterday that he'd start in place of uh, of Anthony Milford, who's who's sensationally been dropped from round one. And uh, as for Isaiah, only 19 years old and uh, and played for Tonga at, uh, at last year's World Cup. Wow, is it shocking because he's such a young player from Tonga? Is is, is having Tongan players at nineteen quite quite rare? Um, I mean, yeah, being a teenager and making an NRL debut, particularly in round one, is rare in itself. But the fact that he's he's uh, he's taken the spot of someone you know who's who's so well renowned in Anthony Milford, who's you know who's done it all from playing playing for Australia, playing Origin, things like that. Um, that being said, uh, Isaiah was touted as a future star at Penrith, uh, where he played before the Dolphins. Uh, he was poached by the Dolphins, actually, much to the displeasure of the Panthers. So, you know, he was definitely someone who was going to make his debut uh, eventually, but. Um, 
Um, I don't think anyone really expected it to happen this fast. There was actually a video uh, the Dolphins released of him yesterday uh, that went sort of all, all around social media of him telling the news to his parents, which was actually oh. quite touching. Uh, yeah, ma- making separate phone calls to both his uh, his mum and his dad. Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, I'd love to watch that um, after this. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's a massive thing. And, and you said this weekend is when he'll be kicking off, is it? Yeah, that's right. I don't actually know what day. Uh, so, sorry, but um, as for poor old Anthony Milford, though, he's he's definitely realised every player's uh, worst nightmare of watching watching the young kid uh, take your spot. So uh, I hope he can I hope he can bounce back. Well, actually, no, I hope he doesn't bounce back. <laughs> I hope Katoa well, stays Well, maybe there. he's he's um, he's happy for the next generation to come on. You know, um, I'm sure I'm sure he had something. To, maybe he can you know foster new. Well, according to Wayne Bennett's uh, Wayne Bennett's comments, I don't think that's the case. Wayne Bennett actually went on record and uh, has basically told him to improve his attitude. And uh, while well, the skipper Jesse Bromwich has uh, told him to fight for his spot, so that actually makes me wonder if he feels somewhat threatened by Isaiah's uh, emergence, as opposed to being that mentor, which you know you, you kind of often want to see from your veteran players. Yeah, that is a shame. Well, um, hopefully at least uh, Isaiah, Isaiah can keep all that drama behind him when he goes onto the field, um, because that is exciting. Um, well, Kyle, I've actually got a story for you in a bit of a oh, twist in news wrap. Yes, I don't know if you've been seeing. I've been looking at this all over my Twitter, and I just wanted to mention to you and, and our listeners to check it out as well. So we've, we have reported that these Fijian um, Defence Force personnel have been sent to New Zealand to help up with the recovery of the cyclone and, and the devastation of Cyclone Gabrielle and the floods also that hit the um, north of, of um, the island of New Zealand. There have been some beautiful, beautiful, and do head online for these, some beautiful videos of... Um, well, firstly, the Fijian um, the personnel singing on the flight over to New Zealand. New Zealand's foreign minister actually shared this on her social media account. Oh. Um, and, you know, just a beautiful thing. And, and just she was sharing how thankful she is to have these Fijians help the country of New Zealand. And then I just saw the New Zealand Defence Force, the, the folks who are um, there helping out for um, for the cyclone recovery, doing a haka to welcome the Fijian uh, personnel into their country, which was also incredibly touching. So just some lovely good news, some silver linings into, I'm sure, all the heartbreak and devastation caused from that cyclone and floods. And, and lovely to see, I guess, a bit of Pacific you know, family and, and friendship and, and support coming through with Fiji sending these people over. So some, some two beautiful videos to check out if you're, if you're online scrolling through the internet today. That is. I'll definitely make sure to check those out uh, Those out after the show. Lovely. Well, thank you, Kyle, for those stories. And thank you for that story, Priyanka. <laughs> that was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. And don't go anywhere. Coming up soon, well, we heard earlier in the show about some of the disc- discrimination that people in the LGBTQI community around the Pacific are feeling. Well, coming up, we'll hear about how researchers hope to tackle the problem in their way, or at least collect data about the problem. They've launched the, the first of its kind survey looking at the experience of Pacific's, Pacific queer communities around the region. Stay tuned. We'll be speaking to the lead researcher about what they hope to find in that uh, survey. But first, a new documentary captures the resilience and innovation of Pacific Islanders as they face some of the biggest challenges of their time. The film called Pacific Upside premieres on ABC tonight, featuring unique stories from all around the region. 
Marion Farr spoke with the producer, Lisa Hilagavi, who explained how the idea began when she started documenting the response to COVID-19. As we were sort of exploring that topic, we kept coming across these fantastic stories of how people had actually used the COVID crisis. I mean, obviously it was very devastating for everyone, but people had actually used the COVID crisis as an opportunity. They'd kind of found the silver lining and they were turning it into an opportunity for their communities. So that's sort of how it all started. And we started to sort of look for stories around that, around, you know, how were people dealing with the COVID crisis but making it into an opportunity for their communities. And after sort of documenting those for a couple of years, um, we thought and the ABC thought that it would be nice to put together, you know, some of the best stories into a compilation um, show. And that's how Pacific Upside came about. And so the stories that people will see in Pacific Upside, are they all COVID related or are there some other stories that are kind of independent of the COVID crisis? Yeah, good question. So, as I said, it sort of started with COVID, but it branched out into so many areas. By the time it got to Pacific Upside, it was no longer really about COVID. It was about, you know, the big issues that people are facing in the Pacific both as nations but also at the community level. So we're talking about, you know, climate change. We're talking about um, period poverty in many of the communities, you know, women um, experiencing that. We're talking about access to education and health. So it really broadened out into uh, much, much bigger topics. Mm. And it also covers such a vast region, so from Timor-Leste to Tonga, right across the Pacific. Of all the stories that you've documented, which is the one that has stayed with you the most? Oh, many, but I guess if I had to pick the two young people that we met in Samoa who are dealing with the issue of climate change in their communities really stayed with me. And that's a, that's a story about these two young science communicators and they love science, like they're obsessed with science. And what they're trying to do is engage other young people into studying science because they really believe that with more knowledge we can find solutions to even big problems like climate change. So they go into schools and we followed them into a school and they do these fun science experiments. But they also, through these science experiments, explain to kids, you know, climate change is happening and this is how it's affecting our oceans. It's, you know, um, making fish stocks disappear. It's um, having all of these different effects. But it's give, giving them that information with uh, a, a hopeful, the hopeful idea that, you know, there is something you can do about it and study science and learn how we can fix these um, these kind of big problems. And I just found them to, those two young science communicators to be so fun and it's a fun story um, but also so inspirational in that they just aren't giving up despite sort of the massive challenge that they're facing. Mm. And for viewers when they watch this documentary what do you think that they'll learn about the Pacific? I think the Pacific is an incredibly diverse region and even if you are living in one part of the Pacific as we are here in Australia or as somebody might be in Fiji, it doesn't necessarily mean that we know or um, 
have been to other parts of the Pacific. So I think what is a real treat for viewers with this is the ability to travel to all of these different parts of the Pacific and see the diversity of what's happening, what people are doing. But I think there's also those um, connections as well. So in many cases across the Pacific, we are dealing with some of the same challenges and it's incredible to see the different innovations that people are um, are taking up in different parts of the Pacific to deal with those challenges. For example, um, in Timor-Leste, another story that really um, I will always remember is about a community high up in the hills in Timor-Leste. It takes seven hours to drive there and often they're cut off um, because of floods and different things. And they've become the first um, community in Asia Pacific that are actually trading on the international carbon market. And they've built up this, um, this forest um, for the last, I think it's 10 years from memory, and they are now sort of trading on the carbon market. And I think that's just an incredible innovation and solution. So to get back to your, it's a very long-winded way of answering your question of, um, to say that I think we'll learn what others are doing in the region to meet some of the challenges that we're all facing. And we also get a chance to, you know, travel and see other parts of the Pacific that we may not have had the opportunity to go to mm. as viewers. Mm. And finally, Lisa, where can people watch this documentary? It will be, it's on ABC iView and it will also be broadcast on ABC International as well from the 1st of March, so from Wednesday. That's great news. So viewers in the Pacific will be able to watch it too. Yes, absolutely. That was Elisa Hilagavi from Small World Stories speaking there with Marion Farr. And as she said, from today, in fact, uh, at well, at different times, I'll get you through them. I'll take you through them. Um, the Pacific Upside documentary will premiere on ABC Australia. So we have 4 p.m. on Timo, in Timor-Leste, 5 p.m. in Papua New Guinea, 6 p.m. in Solomon Islands, and in Vanuatu, it's 7 p.m. in Fiji, 8 p.m. and... Oh, wait, sorry. 6 p.m. in Solomon Islands and Vanuatu, 7 p.m. in Fiji and 8 p.m. in Samoa and Tonga. We rarely go through all the different time zones here, but they, they, there they are to coordinate your uh, watching of Pacific Upside. But don't worry if you miss out on those times, which I so incredibly butchered there, because it will also be able, available to stream on ABC Australia iView from today. You're listening to Pacific Beat on your Wednesday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. And earlier in the show, we heard about the discrimination some members of the Pacific queer community say they endure. Now researchers are trying to quantify and record their experiences. For the first time, a regional survey on the experiences of sexually and gender diverse communities across the Pacific has been launched. Joining us now from the University of Sydney is lead researcher Professor Gioji Ravulo. Good morning to you, Gioji. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Priyanka. Um, so tell us more about this survey. How did it come about and what do you hope to find through it? One of the key things that we're wanting to ensure occurs when it comes to gender and sexually diverse communities is that their lived experience, that their stories, that their 
realities are understood and shared more broadly. So I was approached by Pacific Sexual and Gender Diversity Network, PSGDN, that was uh, that is based in Fiji and works with member countries across the region uh, to further explore this via a research project. Oh, interesting. I mean, is part of the problem that we just don't know exactly those lived experiences that you were talking about? Um, earlier we spoke, we heard from members of the Pacific QA community who said they fear they face extreme forms of discrimination and find it hard to talk about it. Is that silence part of what you're trying to tackle through this research? Yes, completely agree. The silence and the inability for our queer community members to feel like they actually have a particular voice and or visibility is actually deterring our ability to create shared solutions together. So the survey, which will also be accompanied by a series of talanoas across the actual Pacific Islands themselves, will give us a better understanding of those particular experiences and how we can learn from them and hopefully create responsive policies and practices that actually create scope for everyone to feel safe in their own communities. Oh, interesting. So the Talanoas as well. But um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about the survey. How will it actually be conducted? What what questions will you be asking and, and how can people participate? Yeah, so it's a, it's a survey that's been originally developed by the World Health Organization with view that we've adapted it to the Pacific. So it has it is an existing tool uh, that has been previously used in other parts of the world to survey the realities, the lived experience of uh, queer communities. And so we're going to uh, potentially have that made available uh, via a survey link with view that people can actually participate uh, through that, we'll also be working with our member countries across the Pacific Islands uh, and representatives uh, from those particular islands to uh, to administer the survey, to provide the survey uh, in differing forms, so that people are given the opportunity to participate. Mm, and and is um, will the people remain anonymous who participate? Um, because I imagine some people might be worried if they share their experiences that, that they could be discriminated because of it. Mm, of course, very, very much so. The survey is anonymous to complete and the data will be made uh, confidentially, like it will be completed in a confidential manner. And when we do create uh, the results, no one will be identified. It's more so looking again at the bigger picture of what is happening across the region and how we can be more responsive in, in, in helpful ways. And GOG, I believe the the launch of this, well, world first, I guess, the first regional survey on experiences of sexually and gender diverse communities in the Pacific, that launch was yesterday in Sydney. Mm. Um, how did that all go? Did, did you um, speak to people who were there? What was the reaction? Yeah, because we've got uh, the Human Rights Conference starting today in Sydney and World Pride that's been happening over the last uh, 10 days, it's been a wonderful chance to connect with delegates from the Pacific Islands themselves who are present here uh, in Sydney. And so yesterday we had a, a various different uh, events uh, at the University of Sydney, which included a climate action Palanoa, followed by a reception that enabled us to talk further about the survey itself. 
itself and to further profile uh, this particular work. And the key thing, again, that we're really wanting to establish is that we are going to be working collectively, uh, collegially and collaboratively to ensure that the information that is actually collected from across the region uh, is is data that is shared by everyone in, in, uh, in ways that will actually create uh, an ongoing helpful uh, and critical conversation about such topic areas. If you are just joining us this, mo- this morning on Pacific Beach, we're speaking with University of Sydney researcher Professor Gioji Ravulo. He's the lead researcher, in fact, of a new regional survey on the experiences of sexually and gender diverse communities across the Pacific. It's the first of its kind. And, and Gioji, I wanted to touch on what you said before and what you were saying. Part of the survey, it's not, it's not just a form that you fill out, but it's also about creating conversations, having those Talanoa sessions. Um, I know it's still early days, but I imagine that'll be challenging to do considering there is still a lot of discrimination in the Pacific. Um, Are you expecting that? Are you expecting some challenges having these conversations? Yeah, and I think one of the key things that we want to achieve from both the survey and Talanoa's is both, as you mentioned, to create quantitative empirical data that we can use as evidence to create change, including policy and legislation. With the Talanoas, that's more the quality, qualitative approach. And it's through those particular Talanoas that we're wanting to really get a better understanding also around the resilience uh, and the way in which people have reclaimed uh, their gender and sexualities in diverse ways. And I think that's the key thing to also note. We don't want to just focus on a deficit approach to the way in which we understand gender and sexual diversity. We actually want to celebrate and create a strength-based understanding about how awesome our gender and sexually diverse people are across the region. Mm, yes, that's very important, isn't it, Gioji? I think um, perhaps as researchers and journalists alike, we, we tend to focus on the negatives, but it is important, <laughs> um, particularly when we talk about the, these sort of um, issues affecting our queer communities, that we do focus on, on the beauty as well. Um, but you mentioned that there's policy and legislative change that you hope to come out of these surveys. Mm. What exactly might that look like? Well, those critical conversations need to happen at different uh, areas and levels of the community, and that, that includes our policymakers and legislators in each of the countries. And what was wonderful on Monday morning, uh, we were able to speak to some of those representatives from the Pacific Islands themselves who have come to Sydney to further discuss human rights, especially at the conference starting today over the next three days, with view that we can nuance and finesse some of those particular localised perspectives when it comes to change. And effective policy, effective legislation is responsive and is able to ensure that the law uh, and the way in which we do things in society is actually helpful, that it actually sees differences in a way that actually embraces them and creates scope for those particular areas to be meaningfully included. Mm, yes, well, it is early days, and I guess having those conversations helps inform those changes, as you explained there, GOG. Um, and it is early days. The launch was just yesterday. What what do you expect to come? Do you have any ideas about the sort of stories, what, what you might find um, after doing the survey and, and these having these conversations? So in the conversations that we've already had in launching the survey and talking about the survey uh, with our gender and sexually diverse 
communities. Uh, there, there's a real excitement. There's a real excitement about the, the ability to, uh, to create uh, those particular stories. One of the key things that we're wanting really to do is, is to create a conversation not just amongst queer communities, the LGBTQI a plus communities, but also the wider community. If we are really going to achieve social inclusion, this idea that everyone is part of their own communities, it requires all of us to be part of those critical conversations. So that's what we're very excited about, the, the ability to uh, definitely raise and hear the voice and, and, and have visibility around queer communities but to use that as a way of mobilising education around a shared conversation together. Well, GOG, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who are keen to find out more, keen to participate. When When is it all happening? When will we have results that we might be able to delve into as well, or is it all too early? <laughs> so watch this space. Maybe I should then say, everyone follow me on my uh, Twitter, <laughs> at Chorchi Ruffalo, because we're going to be uh, publishing some of those particular things um, via our socials and by also PSGDN. So check that out on their website and socials as well. And we're, hopefully, oh, we're hoping that a lot of these particular the results uh, will be made available uh, in the middle of uh, of this year uh, with mm. you that that can then create that ongoing conversation. Oh, wonderful. Well, that's a lot a lot sooner than a lot of these research projects. So um, very <laughs> impressive, GOG. And uh, yes, we'd love to have you back on the show to, to chat about some of that early data. Um, but thank you for joining us this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you so much. That was Professor Gioji Ravulu from the University of Sydney speaking to us about that new first time ever regional survey on the experiences of sexually and gender diverse communities across the Pacific. And that's bringing us to the end of Pacific Beat for your Wednesday morning. Thank you for your company. Let's do it all again tomorrow.